your hand up. Joseph has a bunch of them in the back and can bring them to you if you don't have one. Galatians chapter 4, reading from verses 1 through 7. If you've got one of those red Bibles, that's page 661 in there. Galatians chapter 4 and verses 1 through 7. As usual, we'll read responsively. I will read the even-numbered verses, and I'll invite you to read. I did it again, didn't I? And I will read the odd-numbered verses and invite you to read the even-numbered verses with me. Thank you, Eddie. Galatians chapter 4 and verses 1 through 7. If you're there, would you stand with me out of reverence for God's word as we read this portion of his word? Galatians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. God's word says, Now I say that as long as the heir is a child, he differs in no way from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. Instead, he is under guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were in slavery under the elements of the world. When the time came to completion, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then God has made you an heir. Heaven and earth will pass away, but Jesus said that his words, these words, would by no means pass away. Let's pray, ask for the Spirit's help, and then we will get to work in this portion of God's word. Well, Heavenly Father, we we ask that as we open up your word, you would be good to us in opening our eyes to see wonderful things out of your law. We pray that you would incline our hearts to hear your testimonies and that you would give us willing hearts and willing minds to submit to your truth. Fathers, I pray this for us. I also pray that for our brethren at Trinity Presbyterian Church this morning. Pray for Pastor Brian and Pastor Dustin there. Pray that they would know your blessing as they minister to your people even now. Be with us as we open your word. We ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, please be seated. Please be seated. I've tagged our text this morning as we finish out this mini-series, Achieving Gospel Clarity. I've tagged it, The Gospel and the Purposes of God. The Gospel and the Purposes of God. Well, as I've said a few times now, we're closing out this second part of our study in the letter to the Galatians. And my hope is that as we've plumbed the depths of this section of God's Word, my hope is that you've gained a sense of clarity about what the gospel is and what the gospel isn't. For those of you who've been here from the beginning of our study in Galatians, I've said that like most Bible books, in fact, all Bible books, in my opinion, Galatians has a through line running all the way along it. I often call that the melodic line of a book of the Bible, that you could read Galatians from start to finish, and you'll pick up one theme. And my task as a Bible teacher and as an expositor is often to try and summarize what I think that through line is, that theme that ties all the individual parts of this letter together in an, in, into excuse me, a harmonious whole. And you 
if you've been picking up the study guides every week, you've noticed that I just leave it in there each week so that you don't forget it. But I want to actually highlight it this week as we wrap out this section. I said that the melodic line for this book, if you were to summarize it in one slightly long sentence, is this, that you've been liberated by the Spirit through the gospel of God's grace. So stand firm in your freedom and reject any addition to the gospel. You've been liberated by the Spirit through the gospel of God's grace, so stand firm in your freedom and reject any addition to the gospel. Well, as we close out this final section of our mini-series, I highlight that melodic line statement because Paul in this section is really going to tie in quite deeply with that. And in two ways, he's really going to show us why we need liberating. Why was it that the Spirit of God and the Son of God were necessary for our liberation? Why did we need liberating? But he's also going to show us how God went about it. So why did we need liberating and how God went about it. Our text this morning breaks up into three scenes, if you will. Three scenes, and they all orbit around this one central truth. The one central truth that this orbits around is this reality that the gospel brings about true liberation, true freedom, through the plan of the Father, through the payment of the Son, and through the presence of the Holy Spirit. That the gospel brings about true liberation through the plan of the Father, the payment of the Son, and the presence of the Spirit. For us to get our hands around that this morning, I want us to consider three scenes. I want us to consider three scenes. Three scenes that unfold this liberating work of God for His people. If we're going to really understand what God has done, I want us to take our time a little bit, walk through this section in Galatians chapter 4, and see what Paul has to say to us about God's work of liberation and His purposes for His people. So, three scenes. I don't plan on being before you long, especially since we have the Lord's table today. Let me jump straight into it. Consider with me, first of all, the problem. Point number one there. The problem. The problem was that you had sons who were no better than slaves. The problem was that you had sons who were no better than slaves, verses 1 through 3. You've heard me say time and again that the chapter divisions in our Bibles are not always the most helpful thing, and this is one of those places where they're not the most helpful. Because... Paul's argument in chapter 4 flows right out of what he said from our text from last week in chapter 3. So following right on from that, look at verse 1. He says, Now I say that as long as the heir is a child, he differs in no way from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. Most of our English translations pick up on the little subtlety here. You remember that I made the point last week that there was a difference between a child and a child who was of age? Well, that's what's happening here. In fact, Paul makes that subtlety a little more plain in the original language. He uses two different words for a, ch- a son and for a child. The word for a child here is literally comes from the word to not be able to speak. There's a child that's too young, a child that's a minor. It, uh, the, if you follow the illustration, it's as though Paul is talking about the child who would be king, but for now is so immature they still need someone to change their diaper. Yes, they have a position. Yes, they have a place. But their position is inhibited by their immaturity. Because they're still young, they cannot exercise 
the power of their position, and they can't enjoy the privileges of that position. For all intents and purposes, as Paul notes, he might as well be a slave. He's no different, has no real rights, no real privileges, and he's basically told what to do. In fact, that's Paul's point in verse 2. Verse 2, he says, Instead, he is under guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So come back to our little kid here. The kid needs people to look after him, guardians, and people to look after his property, trustees, until he's of age to inherit. Because you can't hand the kid unlimited power and unlimited property and expect him to handle it well at that age. He's not mature enough. The problem isn't permanent. He's not always going to be young. He's not always going to be unable to inherit. The problem may not be permanent, but it is persistent. It goes on for a while. Paul kind of drives home the point of his illustration in verse 3. Verse 3, he says, In the same way we also, when we were children, were in slavery under the elements of the world. Now, let's see who was paying attention last week. Remember what I said last week, that there's a really important point of grammar that comes up in this passage? has to do with pronouns. When Paul says, we and us, who's he talking to? Okay, Jewish people, well done. And when he says you, who's he speaking to? The Galatians, well done, you've been paying attention. Well, the same rules apply this week. When he says in the same way we also, when we were children, he's referring to the nation of Israel. and basically saying that the law, which we saw last week and the week before that, had a very specific role for a very specific point in time. The law basically functioned the way that guardians and trustees did for child heirs. It made sure that everything was in place and that the people were ready until the time that the nation was mature enough to inherit. But what's interesting is Paul doesn't just say that, okay, we who are under the law, did you catch that in verse 3? He says, in the same way we also, when we were children, were in slavery under the elements of the law, of the world, excuse me. Interesting, he doesn't say they were enslaved under the law, which is true. He says they were enslaved under the elements of the world. Well, what does Paul mean when he says that? Well, I mean, what's he getting at when he says that they were enslaved under the elements of the world? Well, simply put, the law ultimately dealt with matters that were earthly in nature. So if you read the law of Moses, by and large, it has to do with things to do with this earth. Don't touch this. Don't do this. Don't eat this. Don't eat that. Don't go here. Don't go there. It's a very earthly model of dealing with people. Though the Jewish nation did have indeed God's covenant promises. Yes, there is grace in the Old Testament. Never read the Old Testament and get this idea that there was all law in the Old Testament and grace in the New. No, 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 we're not saying that. But though the Jewish people have the covenant promises, the law was never going to be the means by which they received those covenant promises. All the law could do was kind of keep them focused on what to do and what not to do. Unless we forget or we get confused and think, okay, well, okay, the law doesn't apply to me as a Gentile. Can I put it to you that all legal systems of religion, by which I mean every religion that isn't Bible Christianity, all legal systems of religion have this same thing in common. 
Listen to what Paul says. You don't need to turn there. I'll read it. Colossians chapter 2, verses 20 through 23. Paul says, if you died with Christ to the elements of this world. Oh, same language. You died with Christ to the elements of this world. Why do you live as if you still belong to the world? Know how Paul defines belonging to the world. Why do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. All these things refer to what is destined to perish by being used up. They are human commands and doctrines. Although they have a reputation of wisdom by promoting self-made religion, false humility, and severe treatment of the body, they are not of any value in curbing self-indulgence. Legal religion might give you a clean-cut list of things to do and not do. And that may be fine to a point, but that's what Paul's been trying to say to us from the very beginning of this letter, if you've been here and been paying attention. The law existed to point out sin, but it could never actually bring about righteousness. All it could do was tell you, this is what not to do. It could never actually bring about righteousness, whether that was righteousness that is credited to us or practical righteousness for that matter. So if God's desire was like the child who would inherit for his people to receive all the blessings that he would grant to them, if God's desire was that through Abraham's seed, not just the physical nation, but all God's people of all the nations, that through this seed, they would all be blessed. If that was the plan, and if the law was unable to bring that about, but if that was the plan, how was it going to happen? Clearly, the law couldn't do it. That's been Paul's point from the beginning of chapter 3. If that's the problem, well, what's the prescription? Well, I'm glad you asked. Verses 4 and 5, point number 2, the prescription is that the son, I should put it like this, the son became like a slave. So you had a problem, which is that you had sons who are no better than slaves, but then God's prescription for the problem is that the son, the son, became like a slave. For God's liberating purpose to come to pass, God, God did something that was so amazing that if the Bible didn't tell us, think about it. I wonder if you ever thought about this. I was thinking about this this week as I was putting this together. If the Bible didn't tell us that God became a man, if the Bible didn't tell us that this man would live the life that we couldn't live. If the Bible didn't tell us that this man would die on our behalf, if the Bible didn't tell us that this man would rise from the dead and that he lives to intercede for us, if Scripture didn't tell us that, could you make that up? You couldn't. It doesn't make any sense from a human perspective. There were much more efficient, much more easier ways to do it. <laughs> but here's the plan that God chose, verses 4 and 5. When the time came to completion... God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. There's a lot being said in those few little words, so allow me to help break that down for a minute. First of all, this prescription, if you will, came at the right time. This prescription came at the right time. Verse 4 starts with a very simple phrase. When the time came to completion. 
For those of you who've been here, as we've been through chapters 3 and 4, did you pick up on the fact that there's a lot of time language in these, these verses? In chapters 3 and 4, a lot of time language. 3.19, until. 4.1, till, until. There's this language of time. There's so much language about time. Why? Because in God's grand redemptive plan, there are some timings and sequences to this here thing. Follow me for a moment. Look back at the last reference to time that we looked at in our study so far. So chapter 3, verse 19. Should be just over the page there in your Bible. 319. Know what Paul said? Why then was the law given? It was added for the sake of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise was made would come. Oh, there's that last reference to time. I would put it to you that Paul is making the same point in chapter 4 that he made here in 3.19. And actually that would fit well with the context. That the law had an appointed duration. There was a certain period of time that the law was set to operate. And then when that time came to completion, it came to fullness. That's the literal word there, fullness. When the time came and it was full, when it was right where it needed to be, God sent forth his son. Again, so much for this idea then that the law of God was supposed to be perpetual in all ages. I understand theologically that can be a very touchy point depending which camp you come from. But I think Paul in Galatians is pretty clear that the law was designed to run for a limited period and for a limited time. Well, if it's supposed to run for a limited form and a limited time, okay, what did the prescription look like? Well, secondly, the prescription came in the right form. So look at verse 4, when the time came to completion, God sent his son. The word for sent here, it carries this idea of commissioning, of sending somebody on an official assignment. You see, if you read the Bible, the Bible teaches us that before time even began, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit agreed among themselves upon the plan of salvation. The Father planned that he would rescue fallen sinners, electing a people who would be the recipients of his mercy. The Son agreed that he would be the payment for that people, that he would live for us the life that we were to live under God, and that we would, he would excuse me, suffer in his body the penalty that we were due because of sin. The Spirit then covenanted that he would take the glorious achievements of the Son and he would apply them to the people that the Father chose. And the shorthand way the Bible often describes this concept is by using the word sent. So, a couple of passages in John's Gospel, John 6, 38, he says, For I have not come down from heaven to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If you've heard me preach for any length of time, you know that one of my favorite verses is 1 John chapter 4 and verse 14. And we have seen and bear witness that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Think about that. God didn't send an angel. He didn't send a prophet. He didn't just declare like some huge cosmic amnesty and write it in the sky. No, God did the precise thing that was needed. Sent his Son. Right time, right form. The prescription also comes for the right audience. The prescription comes for the right audience. Jesus acts as a representative 
for a very particular people. Please note what the text says in verse 4. When the time came to completion, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. First of all, he says that Jesus was born of a woman. I mean, that seems like stating the obvious. Aren't all human beings born of a woman? I mean, after all, none of us are here without our mamas, right? But actually, it's, more, it's a little deeper than that. It's a little deeper than that. First of all, Jesus took on full humanity. That's what he means when he says born of a woman. That we didn't have, Jesus was not like Superman. I think I've used this illustration before. You know, I love comic books. Superman is, he looks like a human. He kind of functions like a human when he wants to, but he's not a human. He just looks like one. Not so with Jesus. Jesus was actually a human being. He had a full human nature. He became like you. He became like me. He became like us. So in that sense, he's similar to us in that he's born of a woman, but he's also very different to us. Jesus entered the world virgin born. The only human being in existence, really, since Adam, who had no earthly father. A theme that goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 and the promise of a seed of the woman who would ultimately crush the serpent and free those who are captured by the devil. You see, humanity fell in Adam. And so for man to be free, a perfect man would need to make right what fallen man made wrong. But not only would this perfect man need to be human, he would need to be born under the law. As we studied so far in Galatians, the law of Moses was given to the nation of Israel. Therefore, the one who would liberate those under the law would need to be from that very nation. Through him, God's promise of blessing for all nations through one of Abraham's seed, those of the nation of Israel, would be fulfilled. Right time, right form, right audience. Best part of all, prescription came with the right results. Came with the right results. So look at the end of verse 5. When the time came to completion, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. The son who is sent by the express will of the father redeems those who are under the law. The pressures and the penalties of the law that we've seen in our study of Galatians up to this point would no longer apply to those who are united to him and those who receive his saving work. But even for those who were never under that law covenant made with Israel, because the seed has come, remember God's promise to Abraham back in chapter 12 of Genesis? The promise that through him, all the nations would be blessed. Because that seed has come, we too receive, again, pay attention to those pronouns, so that we might receive adoption as sons. It's often easy to think that Jesus' work on the cross was simply just to, you know, forgive sins and get us to heaven. You know, God, as it were, stamps your ticket and says, all right, I'll see you when you get there. But remember, it was God the Father who sent Jesus. God has always been a father. There are some people who teach that, well, Jesus, well, Jesus became a son in his incarnation, and that's when God became the father. No, God has always been the father. 
And so when he does anything for his people, he does it first and foremost as father. And that includes taking, for, taking forgiven sinners and granting them all the privileges of sonship. Isn't that the kind of news that you want to tell others about? Uh, isn't it the kind of news that you would willingly give anything for so that others can be blessed by it? Isn't it the kind of news that we as a church would want to put front and center, that we would want to share with co-workers, with family, with the lady who makes your coffee every week? I mean, the problem is dire, but what a prescription. You have a problem, which is that you had sons who were basically slaves. You had a prescription, which is that the son became like a slave. But there's more to it than that even. Thirdly, this morning, I told you I'm not going to be before you long. Thirdly, you have the purpose. Well, what's the purpose? Well, the purpose of all this? So that slaves can now become sons. So look at verse 6 with me. And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Because you are sons. Because the son accomplished the commission, the assignment that was given to him. Since he did that, God also did something else. Interestingly, that word that's used for sent in Galatians 4.4, same word is used here of the Holy Spirit. Exactly the same word. The father commissioned the son to be the liberator of God's people. And then he commissioned the spirit to be the one who applies that work and bears witness to our hearts that we have been adopted by the father. The spirit's role is to take that which is true and to minister it to our hearts as God's people. He takes that which we might know notionally, that we might know in our minds, and he presses it upon our hearts so that we know it by experience. By the way, that's why we teach here at Redeemer that there isn't some second work of grace that's needed so that a Christian can have the spirit. If you are a Christian, you have the spirit because the spirit is the one who bears witness to you that you've been adopted. When were you adopted? When you were saved. There isn't a second event that happens for you to be adopted. If that isn't the case, then there isn't some second event you need to receive the Holy Spirit. You see, the, the, the Spirit is the love gift of the Father to the, to the people, excuse me, that His beloved Son loves. When you became a believer, God took up residence in your heart. I don't understand all the metaphysics of it. I just simply know the Bible teaches it. And when he did, it's almost as though the Spirit issues a beacon signal. He sends the signal back to heaven. And the signal basically says, according to Paul, Abba, Father. Paul says this elsewhere, Romans 8.15, if you're taking notes. Romans 8.15, for you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, oh, same words, Abba, Father. The Spirit is commissioned to minister assurance to the people of God every bit as much as Jesus was commissioned to die for that people and to liberate them. 
the false teachers who plagued the church at Galatia, they might have tried to say that, well, you need to keep the law to have assurance. I thought you were Gentiles. You never had the law. We had a head start. We had this thing. You didn't. But now if you have the law, you too can have assurance. Paul basically comes through and says, never mind. Get out of my face with that. Actually, it is the Spirit, not the law, that ministers assurance to the people of God. By the way, did, did you notice those words that are used in that homing signal? Abba, Father. All kinds of interesting ideas are made of this term. Abba was the Aramaic term for father. Aramaic was the dialect of Hebrew that Jesus would have spoken. It developed during the period of the exile. But why would Paul use that term in a text written predominantly to Gentiles? By the way, both times he uses this, te- this word. Romans 8, Galatians 4. He's writing to Gentiles. Why? This wasn't their first language. Why not just say father and be done with it? I think something interesting is going on here. And as I was studying this week, a number of commentators agreed with me. Aramaic was the language Jesus would have spoken. It would have been the language he used when he spoke to the disciples, when he addressed the crowds, when he prayed. That would have been the language he used. One commentator pointed out like this that the Spirit ministers assurance to us from within, calling out to God as Father with the exact words that Jesus did. That the same closeness of fatherhood that Jesus experienced in his humanity, we experience because of the Spirit within. It's not that, okay, you became a Christian, but the quality of your sonship to the Father is different to Jesus's. Now, granted, there is a difference. Jesus is the Son of God by nature. We are sons of God by adoption. But that talks about how we came into the family. It doesn't say anything about how the Father treats us. The Father doesn't treat us qualitatively different, differently. Let me make sure I don't get in trouble with the grammar, please. He doesn't treat us qualitatively differently than he would treat Jesus. And so the Spirit uses the exact words that Jesus would have used in his humanity to address the Father, and so do we by the Spirit's help. And as we land the plane this morning, Paul comes full circle all the way from verse 1. He says, so, the, so, in other words, for the reason that the Spirit testifies that we are the children of God, so, You are no longer a slave, but a son. Different word from a child. This is the child who's a full stature, the child who can inherit. You are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then God has made you an heir. Since Jesus has done the work of freeing Jew and Gentile alike, since the Spirit makes sure that we are assured of salvation, Guess what? You're no longer a slave. You're a son. (laughs) And not just a little son, but a son who's of age. A son who gets to inherit all that the Father has for him. What does the gospel have to do with the purposes of God? Absolutely everything. Because ultimately, 
It is through the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ that God's purposes come to glorious fruition. A family, an inheritance, a glorious hope. Not just for the future, but a hope that doesn't, Romans 5.5 5 doesn't disappoint us. Why? Because God has poured out his love in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. I don't have hope for the fu- just for the future. I have hope in the here and now. All of that comes through the good news of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we, we are so grateful for the gospel. We are so grateful that it is your chosen and appointed means of bringing about all your purposes, not just our salvation, but our enjoyment of that salvation, of the inheritance that you have for us. Father, may we exalt in your gospel. May we rejoice in it always. May it be front and center. May we be those who are willing by your Spirit's help to be willing and able to share that message with others.